Hey there, everyone. Thanks for listening. My name is Maxwell Chen, and welcome to my podcast about the longitude problem and how that impacts modern science and society today. Uh, joining me today are my two very esteemed guests, Kieran Kadali from the University of Michigan. Hi there, Kieran. Hi. We also have Hi. Patrick Andrus from Northwestern University. Hello, Patrick. Hello. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, first, yeah, thank you guys, for having me. Think of science. Good to be here. What comes to mind? Uh, like equations in the textbooks. Yeah, so like more of like a rational kind of thing, like based on equations and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy in libraries. Yeah, yeah. But so what I'm going to talk about today is how science actually may be closer to society than you really think. And I'm going to do that first. Let's look at one incident from the 18th century, the longitude problem. Basically, mm-hmm. what this is, is sailors for centuries before this knew pretty well how to calculate their latitude just by like looking at the sun with the angle of the earth. And the yeah. problem is... They could do latitude really well. They had no idea how to do longitude whatsoever. So essentially the only way they could get anywhere was get on that latitude of the destination and then just like sail straight in the direction until whenever you get there. And I mean, that's how Columbus got where he got. That's how most of the early explorers of Europe got to North America and wherever else they were going. But the problem is when you're about to like reach land, If you get there early, then you probably don't have time to prepare. So you have a really bad chance of running aground, like running into the land early. And so in in 1707, there's a really uh, big example of this. The British fleet is coming back from the Mediterranean. And it's like getting down to nighttime. It's like foggy. So the captain's afraid that they might like hit some islands off the English coastline. So he gets all of his uh, navigators together and he asks them to determine where he is. But the problem is all the only thing they have is dead reckoning. So let me quote from uh, Holly Hughes book, Sailing by Ravens. She defines dead reckoning in two ways. First, the determination without the aid of celestial observations of the position of a ship from the record of courses sailed, the distance made, and the known or estimated drift. And then her second definition, guesswork. Really, <laughs> really they, they have no idea where they are, essentially. So what happens to them? Yeah, Very what fun. happens to them is during the night, they think they're pretty much safe, but they end up, like they have five ships, they end up crashing into the Scillies Islands a few hundred miles off of the English coast. And... They lose hundreds of men. They lose four out of their five ships. And it's all because they have no idea whatsoever what their longitude is. So this really like galvanizes the British public, like the British government, because this is a seafaring nation. So in 1714, uh, the English Parliament passes the Longitude Act, which provides for a 20,000 pound prize for a solution that works within half a degree of longitude or 15,000 within 
two thirds of a degree or 10,000 within one degree. And so to put that into perspective, <laughs> 20,000 pounds in 1714 is roughly equal to $5 million today. So it's like the what? government saying, if you can solve this scientific or mathematical problem, we'll give you $5 million. It's like Bitcoin mining. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> because, but this is like, instead of just being Bitcoin, this is like for the future of their country. So, right, right. You're yeah. actually solving it. Yeah. A detrimental problem. Yeah. yeah. And then, so at this point in time, people pretty much know what you need to do to judge longitude. You pretty much need to know the time differential between like exactly where you are and some known reference point. So basically the reference point we have today is uh, Greenwich in England. But mm-hmm. the problem is, um, well, there's two ways you can solve this problem in 1714. You either have a clock that can keep time of your home port or you use the position of the stars if you can know what like your local time is and you'd probably use noon or midnight. And if you know what time that the stars would look like that in your home port, then you can figure out the time differential. However, both of these don't work in 1714 because clocks just aren't reliable this time. There's temperature changes, rough seas, it causes time to be gained or lost. And the stars doesn't work because there's basically just a lack of data. You don't know what the stars are supposed to look like in your home port at whatever time it is. Right. So in this time period, the very little known clockmaker named John Harrison starts building clocks and watches that are actually capable of keeping consistent time, regardless of temperature changes and rough seas and whatnot. And at the same time, the astronomer royal John Flamstead starts a massive collection of data recording the positions of stars from the observatory in Greenwich every night for years on end to create very detailed star charts. Because the stars are pretty predictable once you right. have enough data. They can they basically put into almanacs like exactly where all the stars are supposed to go like years into the future for every day. Yeah. So really both of these um, solutions work. The problem is with the star charts, it takes a few hours on like a clear night to calculate where you are based on the stars. And yeah, with and then, the clock, it, I mean, yeah. it takes years to build these clocks. The technology isn't there yet, essentially, and it's really expensive. So Uh-oh. they both take a while to get through with the actual uh, working of it. Yeah, so to put this yeah. into perspective of like how important of a problem it is, a couple hundred years earlier, Galileo is already involved with this, uh, with the longitude problem. He actually invents a method where you use the most of Jupiter to figure it out, but uh, it doesn't really work well on ships because like the ocean's churning, so you probably won't have a good view of Jupiter. Plus, it's only like on a clear night and only at night. <laughs> <laughs> so he, cr- he created the least useful yeah. and I mean he actually also created like a mask on your head that has a telescope in one eye and nothing in the other eye so you can look at Jupiter and what? figure out yeah it he creates a really like funky <laughs> method, method of solving it and nobody gives him any money for it <laughs> so- so we can really see the societal influence of the longitude problem 
to the point where Galileo is getting involved. The parliament is doling out huge sums of money for anyone who can solve it. And so we see that society is influencing what questions are actually getting investigated within science. But we also see that society is influencing how these problems are getting solved. Because most of the established scientific community at that time believed that since uh, latitude is measured from the sun, longitude surely must be measured from some other heavenly body. And so they look at John Harrison as just a clockmaker. He's not even a scientist to them. So he's looked down on and he's like, um, discriminated against by the like, established scientific community. So it gets to the point where Harrison has a working chronometer that can keep time and it's good enough to solve the longitude problem. But in steps the astronomer royal, Neville Maskelyne, who really takes issue with Harrison, perhaps because Harrison's a clockmaker and he doesn't see clockmakers as real scientists. Maybe it's because Maskelyne is the astronomer royal after all. He wants to see a solution that's based on the sky. But whatever the reason... Maskeline intervenes and really messes everything up for Harrison. He confiscates all of his clocks for testing. He quote-unquote accidentally uh, drops them on the ground, accidentally breaks some of his clocks, and he moves the goalposts for what's required to receive the prize. So Maskeline here provides a really stark example of some more ideologically based, but regardless of what his reason is, it's an example of scientific foul play. And so all of this, when we think back to what you guys thought were the definitions of science, more like um, aloof from society, away from societal influences, right? And like rational, mm -hmm. speak, like less of like like human drives for like glory or like jealousy. Yeah, but we see this through the longitude, and then. We also see this like throughout history in science. Let me point you to 1912, the example of the Piltdown Man. The what? So, Piltdown Man. Piltdown is a um, a village in England near something where there's like an archaeological site. Okay. And they discover a uh, kind of human-like, kind of ape-like skull, which is supposedly a missing link between humans and the ape ancestors. At this time, this is just a couple years after Neanderthals are discovered in uh, Germany. So a lot of people were thinking, well, if there's ancient humans in Germany, it seems right that they would be in England because, I mean, England's like the top of human society. Surely we originate from England somewhere, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so people raised doubts around Piltdown Man, but every time that there were questions asked, a new piece of evidence, a new bone fragment, or something of the like would be discovered that would uh, soothe the doubts, that would really put all the questions to bed. And so the British throughout this uh, saga believed that since they were really the pinnacle of mankind, they needed a discovery of their own to match the German Neanderthal discoveries. And so we can really see racialized overtones in the rejections of German discoveries, and in the support for Piltdown Man, because the British really believed that humans originated in Europe, and especially in the British Isles, 
And so they really wanted to believe that Piltdown Man was real. Mm -hmm. So then we fast forward to the 50s and we have radiocarbon dating. And it shows that the skull, the jaw, is a modern orangutan. And the like, head part is probably a medieval human being. So this is completely, completely a fake. How does that even happen? Well, people were so like eager to believe that this was real, that they had actually missed some really obvious signs. They looked at the uh, teeth, for example, and they found that the teeth were literally filed down flat to make it look more human and less ape. <laughs> and they looked at, like, the bones were stained pretty well. Like, pretty, it's a pretty good job staining the bones, but you can't stain teeth. So they look at the teeth, and they find that there's literally just paint on the teeth to make it look the bones. And, and this looked really obvious. Yeah, go on. They didn't even they didn't even try to make it convincing. Yeah, I mean it was it wasn't really done to the point where you could actually tell it was real. <laughs> at the time in 1912, because people ex just expected that there would be a find in England at some point. I mean, <laughs> expectations have a really big impact on science because. Like in the early days of electricity, for example, they thought it was a fluid, and instead of having like batteries to store it in, they stored it in jars because yeah. I mean, what else would you store a liquid in? Obviously, yeah. electricity yeah. would go in a jar. I know they warned very strongly against that in like one of my uh, lab classes. They say don't, don't look for your evidence to confirm what you were thinking. Just, you know, do the experiment, and what happens happens. Yeah, exactly. So. But then the problem is they actually thought that they were on the right track because the skull had came out of the ground. But mm -hmm. the problem was um, we now know that it was probably this dude, Charles Dawson, a like, prominent um, paleontologist at the time. And we know that he now, we now know that he had about 38 like fake finds in his collection of like bones, rocks, Roman statues. And he claimed to see he claimed that he saw a sea monster in the English Channel. Oh. So people really, really believe. What a legend. Yeah. <laughs> and really for the British, you know, it seemed completely like correct that humans would have started out in England mm -hmm. at that time, like with the racism that was around. I mean, we know this was a really like well done fake because there's little cavities in the teeth that are stuffed with like pebbles and covered up to make them heavier because yeah, of torture. Yeah, because fossil bones actually weigh more than recent ones. So this proves that it was someone within the scientific community who is actually like perpetrating this hoax wow. and not like kind of outside prankster. And we also know that Charles Dawson really, really wanted to be on the Royal Society. So all signs point his way and it shows that it might have just been him like hunting glory. He wanted to get to that next level of uh, prestige and he wanted to have this find. So scientists there, you know, taking off the lab coat, putting on the ski mask and perpetrating this book out here. Wow. I didn't know I didn't know about that at all. Yeah, it's it's one of the uh, top like one of the biggest examples out there that we have of scientific skullduggery, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, very good. 
we st- and th- to think about today, we still have incentives for someone who wants to chase glory. Like we have the Nobel Prize, we have all kinds of other prizes within different fields of science. Right. And so, if there's someone hunting out glory today, they could be perpetrating another, like well hidden hoax. And so, it's just part of science right now. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to talk about the next aspect of the longitude problem, which is uh, government action within science. And we can see that science is really a political issue uh, in the longitude problem through the passage of the Longitude Act, the creation of the cash prize for longitude. And we can see that science is almost a political statement in this time period as after the longitude problem was solved, the French refused to uh, use Greenwich as the point of zero degrees longitude because they really wanted Paris to be the center of the world. And they really didn't want to have a spot in England be the prime meridian, be the center of the world. They much preferred that to be Paris. It's really a problem of national pride at this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a really... A glaring example of this in our own history with the space race where you know uh, the Soviets launched Sputnik at that point um, with the Soviets ahead of us in science they can really say that well we're way ahead in science that must mean communism is the ideal ideology because we're more dynamic we're more advanced so Mm -hmm. really Sputnik like shows the link between space exploration and national prestige. Yeah. So now um, I I remember reading I remember reading that Miracle and Cole threatened to buy that that they like declared that I think Eisenhower declared in a year of science like around the country. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, with science and space exploration, you're not even like just competing to have the first man in space. You're really competing for like global influence, like political alignment because you need like other countries and people around the world to fall into line. And you want to be, what, you want to be able to say, look what we did. Yeah. Like, how are you expecting a lot of countries to follow you when your opponent is completely like destroying you in space exploration? Yeah. So then the Apollo project becomes the most expensive government funded civilian engineering project in us history because of this like need to, um, use science as a political tool to win like foreign policy and geopolitics battles mm-hmm. during the war. And we can see like the politics through this when the different administrations approach the space race differently, where Kennedy may have seen it as like a straight up battle for supremacy. He made a highly visible program, like a national priority to like win the hearts and minds of people all over the world with yeah. his moon landing. Then once it was completed, Nixon really kind of made it less visible, more like a cooperation with the Soviet Union even. Like, I think he said, um, it's not going to be a national priority, just a normal part of our everyday life. Yeah. I mean, we can trace this back to their own foreign policy. Kennedy's like brinksmanship. He's got the Cuban Missile Crisis. Nixon's a little more uh, chill on the foreign policy front. He's using detente instead of brinksmanship. Mm -hmm. And he's bringing more like agreement and calm to the space front and and we can still look at this today even where countries still are trying to advance in space maybe like Like, smaller countries 
like Israel like less, and India, I've heard. Yeah. So, I mean, not even like smaller countries, but maybe countries that are just getting more advanced now, mm-hmm. like China. They're uh, launching satellites. And China recently landed on the dark side of the moon and grew some plants in a satellite on there. So they're really trying to use that as a political statement today, even. Yeah. Show that, oh, it's not just the U.S. as the superpower. We're here now to challenge them, too. And more on the home front, um, we have the example of President George W. Bush, who banned stem cell research for uh, political reasons, but also a mixture also of religious reasons, where we can see that religion and politics are both influencing science. And then another example would be climate change, which we all know what a political fireball that is. Something very interesting I found was that in North Carolina, they passed a law. And uh, let me read you some slightly more sensationalist headlines about it. North Carolina literally passed laws against science on sea level rise. Uh, North Carolina banned sea level rise science. North Carolina didn't like science on sea levels, so they passed a law. And North Carolina passed laws against science on sea level rise. So they're, and it's not as sensationalist as it, as those put it from the New York Times. Um, What they really did was they ordered uh, state and local agencies to like ignore science with models that showed an acceleration in sea level rise. And like whenever they were making like plans for development along the coast, they were like required to ignore sea level rise. What? Oh, that's much much better. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's still a problem because um, we're not allowing the guys in lab coats to be aloof and to be outside of society. We're saying, well, if they're slightly outside society, we're just going to lock them out altogether and we're not even going to consider their findings. Yeah. So it's, it's another example of like politics versus science and politics is kind of winning out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then um, even beyond like the governments, which obviously the governments can control what questions get asked within science, but also companies can do that as well. If you think of like corporate science and we've all heard of like um, studies like oh, eating nuts prevents cancer or like obesity or something. And then you scroll down funded by the nut industry or like, <laughs> I know a cup of coffee cancer funded by the coffee industry so you know corporate funded science really they don't do pure science it's science to meet a corporation's needs and so let me quote from a review of a, a article called corporate science the labs though removed from the everyday pressure of the factory were expected to contribute to the company's commercial success so really it's it's not science for the sake of science anymore that's Science with like a, a specific goal. Yeah, it has a specific goal, regardless of where the science may lead them. And so, corporate labs actually don't want like genius scientists. They want like quiet team players to just like push the corporate uh, goals along and make sure they get the progress that they want. They don't necessarily want to like have some genius out here like blazing his own path. They want someone that's controlled by them. So we get another example of society really uh, pressuring where science goes. Then let's talk about um, the reverse of that almost where 
how science can affect society. I mean, we all know about like things like the Industrial Revolution, things like the internet today. But on a, another level, we can look at the Soviet scientist uh, Trofim Lysenko, who uh, the Atlantic has named him as the most like deadly scientist of all time. Like they've said, probably other than um, like the generations of scientists who worked on like uh, gunpowder weapons and all of that. Those are the only people who have who can like even light a candle to what Lysenko did in terms of his destruction, because he was the Soviet scientist who implemented a lot of their agricultural science. And we know how that worked out for them. Massive famines all around the communist world through Soviet Union in China, like tens of millions of people died because of um, science, because of like Lysenko's uh, fake debunked science. But we can also see that his science actually came from a place of ideology. And I'll give you three guesses from the Soviet Union's point of view, what his ideology was because he was a hard line Marxist and he really hated like the West. So he hated Western science and the field of genetics. And in particular, he hated the idea of the gene because it implied an inability to change. And we know that Marxism relies on change. So um, Lysenko being a Marxist, it like prevented him from agreeing with the idea of genetics and made him create his own new like field of science almost. So hmm. Lysenko believed that um, acquired traits would be passed down through generations because he doesn't believe in genes. He thought that like any like part of your body could pass down um, traits to the next generation. So that kind of leads to acquired traits being passed down to the next generation, which, I mean, we know that's false. It would be like um, if you are a bodybuilder, then expecting your baby to come out already super ripped it doesn't work like that we know that yeah i've heard about that so being the soviet agriculture scientist lysenko was really concerned with trying to grow crops in the soviet union in their harsh winter so he proposed that you could soak seeds in cold water so that they would be immune to the cold and then since that's an acquired trait then the next generation of seeds after that is also going to be immune to the cold. So you can plant those also in the Soviet winter. Long story short, it didn't work out like that. And tens of millions of people died across the communist world because of the famines that were created through their following of Lysenko's junk science. And the fact is that his ideas came from a place of ideology. And kind of after the Soviet Union went away, that ideology died down a little. But now we know that the uh, ideology of Lysenkoism is actually coming back because um, there's a, a new like revival of anti-American sentiment in Russia. And since science is seen to be like a really huge part of like Western society, uh, Lysenko is viewed as a Russian hero because he stood up against Western science. Like his followers today actually say that genetics is serving like interests of American imperialism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's, it's really like showing how, um, it's, he's really showing how ideology can create science almost. And then that science 
comes back to have a recursive effect upon society where society and science is almost like a chicken and an egg question where they're like locked together in a cycle almost. Hmm. And this is like, yeah. So like we can look back at longitude. Lysenko is almost like the Soviet version of Maskeline where Maskeline thought, well, the solution to longitude can't come from a clock. It has to come from the sky. Lysenko thought, well, the solution to agriculture doesn't come from these like Western imperialists. It must be something we can come up with here in Russia. They were too close-minded in what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But like, so it's really interesting how society and science are really coming together here to influence each other almost like um, the idea is that science would be outside of society, not affected, really rational. But we have to actually look at uh, scientists throughout history being, you know, irrational, um, not really aloof, really like a full part of society that has impact society, impacts by society. So, yeah. So let me leave you with a quote from Scientific American here. Uh, It goes, even now on the heels of the March for Science, we see some scientists hesitate to acknowledge the fact that science is political. Why wouldn't they? We hold it up as the golden standard of objectivity and synonymize it with words like unbiased and rational divorcing it from our human capriciousness. It's quite natural to associate those notions with science. After all, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more objective way of discovering the true nature of nature than by utilizing the power of the scientific method. But there's an important distinction to be made between science and the scientific method. We use the scientific method to minimize bias and maximize objectivity. And that is what is rational and unbiased. The scientific enterprise, however, is not, and it's nothing short of clinging to a fanciful myth to suggest that it ever was. Really a a hard hitting, um, uh, almost indictment of science from the point of view of being rational and unbiased here. But I think we can look past the criticisms and we can say that really uh, scientists are people too and Mm-hmm. Until we have like computers doing science for us, there's going to be uh, like people who are seeking glory, people who are jealous of others, people yeah. who de- adhere to a strong um, political point of view. And the pe- there's there's still people, so they're not infallible and they're still part of society. So, yeah, um, different aspects of society are still going to impact them at the same time that science is coming back to impact society so yeah really interesting to see how like throughout history science and society are they have a really uh large area of intersection it's really not as separate as certainly has i had thought before learning about all of these things and what a lot of people think yeah and i was kind of on the same boat as you but you know yeah Unfortunately, yeah. that might be the case. Yeah, I think maybe, uh, maybe we can learn some things about science and society through looking at it this way, because um, maybe the political implications of science can be useful in the future. 
as well as like just like um, helping people see that maybe scientists aren't um, like aloof and someone somewhere else. We need maybe people can learn like science isn't a conspiracy. It's not mm-hmm. like Western imperialism. It's not an elite conspiracy. Maybe seeing how uh, science and society are really intertwined, maybe that can help the view of science in the future, you know? Yeah, because there's a... That brings to mind, like, anti-vaccine sentiments where people are, like, basically just scared of science for some reason, but it's not like yeah. it's out to get you. It's, it's here to help. Yeah. And then, but even at the same time, you know, the credibility of science really is like you can start to question really start thinking of science as like a human enterprise where you know um, we're we're not perfect we have this method that is pretty close to perfect but yeah. you know, we're the ones carrying it out so yeah yeah exactly. it really kind of uh changes your view of scientists as like an outside group you know it's more of just all of us together as as society is trying to you know, we're not perfect, but we're trying to do the best we can in this world. Uh-huh. That's all we really can do. Yeah. Well, uh, I believe Patrick has had uh, some difficulties. He's dropped out a while ago. But thank you to Patrick for joining us. And uh-huh. Kieran yeah. for successfully making it through. Thank you for joining us, too. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so everyone out there, thanks for listening. I hope you found this uh, insightful as in terms of learning more about how learning more about the longitude problem and learning about how science and society are really intertwined with each other and really not as separate or aloof as you might think. So mm-hmm. thank you.